to Matizi Stories, a podcast by the Matizi Museums exploring Matizi area history through its people, places, and events. This season, we're examining national and international conflicts through the lives of local veterans. This is the second part of a two-part episode covering World War I, and this time, we're talking about the boys of Company K. States joined the Great War in 1917, it didn't have a large standing army. To remedy this, Congress put in place the Selective Service Act, which made for a draft, and the first draft took place on June 5th, 1917. Just a couple months later, on August 5th, the National Guard from each state was drafted into the United States Army to provide additional troops. Any members of the Wyoming National Guard were part of this movement. This included the boys of Company K. They were led by Captain Bertram Bennett, who wrote E.P. Bowman, mayor of Matizzi, on August 27, 1917, from training camp. We are getting along just fine, and before long, we are going to have the best company in the regiment. The boys are all anxious to learn, so that makes it easy for me to teach them. You would hardly know the boys now, since they have their uniforms. They seem to look so much straighter and seem to take pride in looking straight and neat. Roughly a month later, on September 29, 1917, a letter appears in the Mutizi News from Edward Pierce, one of the youngest members of Company K. Dear Mother, well, the Wyoming Regiment was once and is no more. Part of the regiment went into the Colorado Field Artillery, and the rest of us were transferred to the ammunition train. Part of us will drive trucks, and the remainder will be transferred from the company to become Mule Skinner. We don't know who will drive trucks, but the transfer list is all made out. George Campbell, Leonard Bulware, Bob Dickey, Henry Henderson, and Earl Moore were the only ones of the Matizzi boys transferred so far. Gussie Dodge will get a truck, as I think he is as good a driver as there is here. I can't get a truck on account of my age, but I will still be in the company. We are fortunate enough to keep Captain Bennett, he being transferred with the rest of us, and I will still be as orderly. He told me that it was the only way he could keep me and they wouldn't let me have a car, and since I came down, he wanted me to stay with him so that he could look out for me, but I would rather be at home. Some of the boys cried because they are to be transferred. We were told that we had the best company in the regiment and one of the best in the division, which consists of 50,000 men, but we can't get any better now. I am rather glad of the change, though, because I wasn't very crazy about going on the firing line in France, but now we must haul the ammunition to the edge of the danger zone. Some of the boys will have to skin mules, and they sure hate it, and I hate just as bad to see the boys leave as I would to leave myself. I asked Ed Lingle, who you'll remember from the last episode, why groups like the Company K were separated when they got to France. What happened was that early in the war, countries like Great Britain had recruited units from towns uh, or from schools. So often you'd have like the whole senior graduating class of a school would all join together. They'd all be in the same unit. And then they would go to the front, they'd launch an attack, and then most of them would be killed. So you would have whole towns, whole communities, and whole schools that would be totally devastated. And the United States learned something from that experience. When we entered the war in 1917, 
divisions were organized often around communities. Um, again, the Wild West being from eight different Western states, but um, there were others like the 26th Division was all from New England. The 28th Division was all Pennsylvania. The 77th Division was all New York City. But shortly into the war, the United States Army decided that was not a good idea, and they mixed up the units. They kept some of the originals there, but then they reassigned them uh, to, to different units. Um, and it, it was a very confusing process and a very confusing system. Some uh, guys would, some soldiers would be put into divisions like the 41st Division, uh, they thought they were going to go to the front to fight as a division, but then the army, when that division reaches France, they decide to break it up. And they take all the guys from that division and send them as replacements to other divisions and then keep that division as a shell. They call it a depot division, which is only really exists just to filter replacements to different divisions and units on the front lines. So that's why you'll often find a soldier's record he will initially be part of one division and then he'll be assigned to another division and, and mix them up. Some units though, never really lost their regional character. The, the 77th division, which I wrote about in my last book, still retained a very New York city character to it. Uh, but then the army moved in all of these Western farm boys into this division with all of these New York city street gang members. Uh, so it made things pretty messy for a while, um, but yeah, it was it was uh, it, it it was took for a lot of mixing. The transfers Edward mentions don't take effect until January 1918, and before they do, Company K loses its first soldier, Marion Tanner, to pneumonia at training camp in Camp Green. After Tanner's death, the soldiers of Company K depart from the United States from Hoboken, New Jersey, on the United States Antigone. The date is December 12, 1917. That January, after arriving in France, their company is split. The majority of the Wyoming National Guardsmen become part of the 1st Motor Truck Company, 116 Ammunition Train, 41st Division. They are led by Bertram W. Bennett, son of William Sabin Bennett, a former Matizzi doctor and well-known character. Although not on the front lines, Company K had an important role to play in the war effort. Well, putting a, managing a unit in the front lines is very complicated business. The, uh, the number of men who actually serve at the very front and who are combat soldiers is not really the majority of those who serve. They have to be supplied. So... Uh, the servicemen uh, and women who have to be involved in managing the train of supply of getting food and ammunition and water and clothing and, and other equipment to and from the front is massive. Uh, they have to do a lot of work. The uh, command and administration is huge. Uh, you have to give orders, but you have to keep records of orders. You have to make requisitions for supplies. You have to keep track of communications. Lots of people were involved in communications back and forth, laying wire, sending signals, communicating with aircraft and artillery. Um, 
And then, um, you know, this, this was an area in which many women were involved as well. Uh, women drove ambulances uh, to and from the front lines uh, on a number of occasions. They also, of course, served as nurses, um, in some cases doctors, uh, in, in um, casualty clearing stations or field hospitals, um, or helped with giving the soldiers food and supplies um, as they went uh, to and from the front. So an army is a very complicated piece of machinery uh, in the modern age. And uh, the work that servicemen and women did in different parts, if it wasn't behind the line, if it wasn't in the front lines, it was still important. It was still critical to, to victory. When the men of Company K arrive in France, they find themselves immersed in the chaos of the Western Front. At this point, Germany finally has a war on one front, the Western Front in France. Just months after they arrive in France, the men that Edward Pierce noted were transferred to what is known as the Rainbow Division. And they found themselves immersed in major military engagements. Dear Dad, I guess you will be surprised to hear from me, and I hope this will find you well. Thank God I am still alive, but I am in the hospital just now, but not dangerous. I have gone through two of the largest battles that have been fought. I guess you have read about the battle on the front. I was in that. We've been making it hot for the Dutch. Do you ever hear from Cecil? I have not heard from him since last January when I was transferred to the division. I guess you have read about the Rainbow Division? Well, I can't say any more about the war. If I ever get back home, I will tell you all about it. Do you ever go over to my place? Yes, Dad, several of my Wyoming friends that were with me got killed in our last battle. I sure have been lucky. Well, Dad, I guess I will close for this time. Tell all hello and write to me. So, goodbye, your son, Leonard Bulware. That letter from Leonard Bulware appeared in the Cody Enterprise on October 23, 1918. It was censored by the Cody Enterprise to protect Leonard. His letter leaves the impression that he's still processing recent events and reluctant to sign off. His brother, Cecil, remains with the bulk of Company K in the first motor truck company, routinely delivering ammunition to the front. Among the friends Leonard mentions were Robert Bottles and Earl Moore. Both were thought to have died during the battle. Only one actually did. Robert, the youngest member of Company K, died at age 18. He had spent five months and 19 days in France before his death on July 27th, 1918. was one of many to die during World War I. So how did the United States government and the Army deal with these deaths? Well, that's a really good question. I gave a, I gave a whole lecture on this when I teach my class because it is one of the most important things if you've got a representative government that you're accountable to the people. When people were just fighting for their king or the pope or something, you'd just die and that was it. But when you're fighting for a government that you vote for and you participate in, there's a contract, there's a social contract. So when the United States went to war, they set up a set of benefits 
for soldiers. And they said, we guarantee that you will receive proper, proper medical care and that you will receive death benefits as well. And then veterans benefits much later um, were, were evolved. So, um, but, oh God, it was just a mess because people were just absolutely outraged. Um, something that's kind of funny um, with the influenza, right, well, right when we went to war and we were mobilizing, there was an epidemic of measles and mumps in, the, in um, November and December 1917, um, before the flu. And several thousand men died um, and were sent home. And they, some of them were sent home in their clothes without, not their uniforms. And sometimes there were mix-ups about who was being sent home and parents were absolutely outraged. And so they called their members of Congress and their hearings on this. What are you doing? This boy, this family gave this boy to the country and here you kill him of influenza, of measles, and then you send him home in his underwear. And so that had to get cleaned up very quickly because it was so politically um, fraught. Then when they started dying on troop transports, the Navy, they started burying them at sea. And the Army doesn't bury at sea. The Navy buries at sea. And so families were freaking out that their sons were being thrown into the ocean. And that's fine for Navy families, but not, and so they had to stop doing that. So then they had to start um, putting them in coolers because some of these ships had dozens of deaths in the crossing. Um, and so there's great care taken with the dead. So you know about the dog tags, right? So you had a dog tag around your neck and a dog tag around your arm. And you know why that is? In case you get blown up, they can find at least one part of you. And so... In war, what do you do? You just bury some people as soon as you can because you, it would be, they're trying so hard to get everybody over there that they couldn't get anybody back. So they just buried them in place. But then so you'd have shells that would come in and explode the cemeteries. So you'd have to rebury them. So that happened. Um, but every unit had um, military chaplains. There were um, funerals. There were medical officers um, would maybe preside at funerals. So they, this was done carefully and respectfully. And then someone always wrote a letter home to the family. And I've got a lot of those letters. And so, and doctors would write the letters and then they would keep all of the material, all the things. And they'd say, we have your things. What do you want to do with them? So in the Navy, they would be auctioned off to people because you can't, you're not going home for years or, you know, in the merchant Marine, but in the army, you're different, you're land-based. So um, widows or mothers would write back, say, I want his things or the only thing I want is watch or I, you know, whatever. So there was correspondence. And then after the war, they have all these guys buried in all these. Um, and how many were there? There were, about 50,000, 50, 55,000 Americans died in France. Um, so some people said, we want our boys back. They shouldn't be buried in foreign land. And some of them died in Russia. Um, some of them died in Germany because they were there for the um, occupation. And then other people, um, including Theodore Roosevelt, 
said, no, this, they died on a field of honor. They should be honored by being buried where they died. And his son died. One of his sons died as a pilot. So there's a big debate. And the Congress, in its courage, said, we will let the families decide. So they let each family decide if they wanted their, their um, son, it was men, um, buried at home or sent home or to Arlington or buried in, in um, France. They took everybody out of Germany and they took everybody out of Russia. So it'd be France. And so there are two big American um, cemeteries there that the French gave in gratitude. So that was this huge expense. You know, the war was over, but they're doing all of this work. And then um, these women started to say, well, we want to go see our sons. So um, in 1927 or so, Congress passed legislation to pay for all them for a mother. They were considered all mothers, but some wives to go visit the graves. And it included blacks, but they did it in a segregated way. So the black women went there. It's all very, there's, books, there's a bit, been a book written on this. So it's, it's a very interesting story. And it's about how a government has to really respond to the needs of people. Robert would eventually be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Earl Moore returned to Matizzi when the war was over. The Northern Wyoming Herald reports the return of Moore to Matizzi on July 9, 1919. It was in the engagement around the big lake in that Chateau Terry Drive that Bottles, a lad of 16 years and the youngest boy of the Park County Company which left the front, was killed in action. And at the same time, Moore was erroneously listed in the casualty list as killed in action. He somehow became separated from his company lost his identity on the army records, and while he battled in some of the hardest fought engagements of the closing months of the war, he never received a cent of pay, nor could he obtain any mail. How common was it for soldiers to go missing during the conflict? Pretty common. The, um, the offensive created a lot of disorganization. The, the assaults were so um, bloody, and so complex and the terrain was so broken that often there were stragglers. Uh, There were people who were, they got separated from their units, uh, whether just because they got lost or because they ran into some obstacle and got left behind or they were injured uh, and they got mixed up. A lot of these units, as they were moving forward, they they tangled with each other um, and and got mixed up in the front lines, which created all kinds of confusion. By the by, mid-October and the Mizargon, there were something like 25,000 stragglers uh, around in various parts of the line who had to be organized. Uh, there's no imputation of cowardice there. If a soldier was considered dead or lost for a time and then showed up, that doesn't mean necessarily that he did anything improper. More likely it, it meant that the soldier just uh, was 
disorganized, you know, ended up in a different part of the line and had to find his way back. Uh, and sometimes people would think that they saw somebody get killed uh, and then it was actually somebody else. Moore survived World War I and returned to Matizzi, but he was still the victim of an untimely death. In 1929, Moore died and his death certificate lists the cause of death as murder. There are rumors that he died in a poker game. Leonard did not make it through the conflict unscathed. Poison gas was introduced to World War I in the spring of 1915, and the men of Company K were unfortunately all too familiar with the substance. In the early days, the Germans were the first to use poison gas in 1915. Um, and then the Allies followed quickly afterwards. They used a variety of types of chemical compounds um, chlorine gas, first of all, then phosgene, and later mustard gas. The way that it was delivered at first is that they would push um, pipes or tubes out into no man's land, wait until the wind was right, and then release the gas and hope that the gas would drift over enemy lines. Sometimes the wind shifted and then it'd come back over your own lines. So that really wasn't very effective. So they developed a means of uh, firing gas canisters through artillery. Um, by 1916, that was the common thing. Uh, both sides would fire gas against each other, hopefully to land in the enemy trenches or around there. And it was terrible stuff. I mean, mustard gas in particular not only could burn out your lungs, but cause terrible burns on your skin, on exposed skin. And gas had a way of, of settling into trenches, into shell holes, and things like that. I've often uh, walked on the Western Front, uh, and if you walk there today, you still see, and they're very, very dangerous. There are still gas canisters lying around on the ground in some areas. And it's um, if you step on it, you can get really badly burned uh, or, or poisoned. Uh, it's, and that's true on some of the American battlefields too. It's just awful stuff. Part of the, part of the problem was now by the time the Americans came in, um, there were gas masks, which were pretty effective if they were worn, um, gas mask on the outside with goggles and then a, um, a, uh, breathing tube on the inside that you'd have to clasp in between your teeth. Now, the problem was with those, first of all, you couldn't see very well, and they would tend to fog up. Second, they'd get extremely hot uh, after, after you wear it for a while and, and almost suffocating. And breathing, you could breathe, but it wasn't easy. The um, gas attacks would often last for hours. You know, so you would have to wear these masks for, for many hours. Americans were resistant. They didn't like wearing these things, uh, which is understandable. Uh, and they were often poorly trained in, in using them properly. So sometimes they, they would think, well, if I just keep the mouthpiece between my teeth, then I can leave my mask off. And of course, it didn't work that way. Uh, proportionately, the Americans suffered much greater gas casualties than any other country, uh, partly because they were poorly trained. Once, once Another thing that often happened with the Americans is that 
they would get what they thought was just a whiff of gas, just got a breath of gas, not like full saturation, but you cough for a while and you think, well, it's no big deal. I'll get over it. Uh, and they didn't report as casualties. So um, the result of that was often they found out over the long term that their lungs had been badly damaged. And I've spoken, including in my own family, uh, with many descendants of World War I veterans who said, yeah, my grandfather came home and he was coughing constantly. He never even was reported as a casualty, but um, his life was never the same and he died young. For those who were more heavily gassed, yeah, they would be evacuated as quickly as possible uh, on whether uh, horse-drawn transport or on ambulances, which were little Model T Fords often driven to the front lines, taken to casualty clearing stations and to hospitals. But by the time they got back, there was often little the doctors and nurses could do to care for them. So it was... uh, care for that kind of that kind of poison gas was was very very challenging soldiers hated it more than anything and they hated it the most and they and so did the nurses everybody hated gas um and so it emerged and and so there was an escalation of of um gas weaponry but then it also one thing you get out of world war one is you get meteorology because if you're firing gas artillery shells you got to know which way the wind is blowing so it doesn't blow back on your own troops so um so meteorology and that's with the balloons and all that but um but gas um burned people, it blinded them, and then it ruined their lungs. And so you could recover from the from the burns, but but the lungs, a lot of the men had lungs ruined for the, the rest of their lives. Um, so and there wasn't anything to do about gas. So it was it was outlawed by the Geneva Convention in the 1920s. Um, chemical weapons were as being inhumane. For Leonard Boulware in particular, the poison gas was one of a host of problems. He was in and out of the National Home for Disabled Veterans in Marion, Indiana, and all of his visits numbered several months. On October 11, 1927, three years after his last visit to the veterans' home, the Cody Enterprise reports Leonard's death with the title, Veteran of the Rainbow Division Passes On. They note since his return from France in 1918, he has been a constant sufferer from the injuries received during the big conflict. He was not only seriously wounded in the war, but gassed and shell-shocked. Some of Leonard's injuries occurred during the Musicon Offensive. I spoke with Ed Lingle, who has a book out called To Conquer Hell. The book details the Musicon Offensive, and I wanted to better understand what environment these boys and these men were in during the war. Well, a lot of people don't realize that the largest and bloodiest battle in the history of the United States took place in World War I, and that was the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. It lasted from September 26, 1918, right up to the end of the war, November 11th, 
And the majority of the fighting, though, and the majority of the bloodletting took place in the first three weeks of the battle. So you're looking at September 26th to roughly October 15th. And during that period, 26,000 Americans lost their lives killed in action with over 100,000 other casualties. And if you put that in the scale of our other military engagements over the history of our country, that's over half the number of combat deaths in the entire Korean War. It's approaching half the number of combat deaths in the entire Vietnam War, each of which lasted years. But you're compressing that into three weeks time. So it was an incredibly intense battle, approximately 1 million American soldiers uh, and Marines overall were involved in this battle. The whole goal of the the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, this was the first major offensive overseas that the Americans ever undertook. The first part, Meuse and Argonne, uh, refers to the Meuse River, which was on the east flank of the assault, and the Argonne Forest, which was on the left flank of the assault. All of this took place in a region uh, just northwest of the French city of Verdun. Uh, Some of your listeners may have heard of the Battle of Verdun, one of the greatest battles of all time. This is in eastern France. This offensive took place just to the west. So offensive in this case means a full offensive by an army, an attack against German-held positions, uh, which were well-entrenched positions by nine divisions initially, uh, each each of which had uh, up to sixteen to 18,000 troops in the front lines um, in three corps, three army corps from left to right. Uh, those were shifted in and out. They had objectives that they needed to meet each day of the offensive to cover a certain area of ground uh, in order to reach their ultimate destination was the railway junction of Messiers. Uh, so this was some of the worst ground on the entire Western Front. It, it was terrible, terrible ground that they had to cover. The Rainbow Division, which was what my great-uncle great fought in, uh, that's the 42nd Division. It was um, composed of National Guard units from several different states. Uh, and therefore it was designated as representing all the colors of the rainbow uh, because of the different state flags that, that it came from. It came from states like Iowa and Alabama, uh, different, totally different parts of the country. And um, one of the brigades of the Rainbow Division was commanded by Douglas MacArthur. They played a very important role in the, in the offensive. Uh, they were not in the initial attack, but they were brought in in mid-October to assault a German strong point um, around a place called uh, Cote d'Amarie, uh, you know, or, or Mother Mary's Hill uh, would be a, uh, an American translation. I've been there. It's it's very steep, very formidable hill. Uh, the Germans had dug in there very effectively in their, their central defensive position. They called the Kremhild Stellung. And the 42nd Division was tasked 
along with the 32nd Red Arrow Division from Wisconsin and Michigan to crack that central strong point. And they did. Uh, MacArthur led the assaults uh, on that strong point. Uh, he claimed in one instance that he led a reconnaissance party uh, to the German wire overnight and that every member of that party was killed except for MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur claimed to have found the gap in the German wire that allowed for the the eventual breakthrough. That's pretty controversial. It, it seems more likely that an airplane saw it, but whoever found it, uh, the 42nd and 32nd divisions were both critical in, in exploiting that and breaking through and cracking the central German defensive position. The Musergon Offensive was the last battle of World War I, but there was no victor. Instead of a resounding defeat for either side, all countries laid down their arms on November 11, 1918. The negotiation of peace treaties would last well into the 1920s, and their effects are still felt today. So um, there's an armistice in 1918, and that's an important difference with World War II, where there was, um, they, they required unconditional surrender. So and in an armistice, you know, everybody just lays down their weapons and says, okay, we're going to go to the table and negotiate. Um, this uh, was a pretty unequal negotiation for the Germans. First of all, the German Empire fell apart, and the Kaiser, the, the leader of the empire, fled into exile in the Netherlands. And so they had like a brand new kind of provisional government. They were trying to like figure out, you know, how to move forward. Um, and the Allies, as a way to put pressure on the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, um, kept the blockade in place. So they had, they had put a food blockade in during the war where they were basically starving civilians, and they kept it in place until the peace treaty was signed. So they kind of forced uh, a resolution. Um, the Russian Empire, of course, had fallen at this point and was in civil war um, by 1919, and fighting with itself and also with its neighbors like the Ukraine and Poland. Um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell apart and reconstituted as a whole bunch of new states. So Czechoslovakia, um, again, parts of Poland were, were pulled into a new Poland. Um, Austria became its own state, Hungary, you know. Um, and uh, the Ottoman Empire fell apart also. <laughs> and so um, the British and the French assumed responsibility there as kind of sort of like pseudo-imperial overlords. Um, and so they created these mandates there. Uh, the British and the French also carved up all the German imperial holdings in Africa and made them um, part of their own, um, again, kind of uh, oversight. Japan took charge of some of the German colonies in the Pacific. They occupied those and um, were in control um, so it's the imperial aspects also get really shifted. Um, and uh, at the peace negotiations, I, sh I should also mention in the midst of all this, 1918, 1919, there was the flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people, both soldiers and civilians dying in the middle of it, we can now appreciate a little more what that was like, I think. Um, 
And so, you know, you've got a lot of chaos and uncertainty and devastation, and they're trying to also do these, this political maneuvering. Um, and then the last thing is that Woodrow Wilson got sick um, and was probably less effective than he would have been at um, kind of convincing Americans that uh, the treaty that was in place should be uh, something that the U.S. signs on to. And so the U.S. refused to sign the treaty that ended the war in um, in France, basically, the, the Versailles Treaty. Um, but I should mention that there were separate treaties for uh, all over um, all the various um, combatants. So the last treaty isn't signed until 1923, so it takes a long time to do that. Many of the Company K soldiers returned to the United States throughout the first six months of 1919. Most would live to see World War II and would sign up for the draft. Others, like Leonard Bulwer, passed away in the months and years following armistice. Their deaths are directly related to the wounds received on the Western Front, both physical and mental. Special thanks in this episode goes to all of our guests, Edward Lingle, Tammy Proctor, Carol Byerly, and Carl Strickwarda all joined us to speak about World War I. Links to their books, websites, and contact information can be found in the show notes for this episode. As always, a special thanks goes out to Jenna Williams for our wonderful cover art and to Kathleen Holzer for her research on Matizzi veterans. Take the time to rate, review, and like Matizzi's stories as well as share it with your friends. We'll see you next time for an episode on World War II.